Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by my colleague Jason Sneed, and we'll talk about Ginsburg's triumphant return to the bench, uh, one big SCOTUS decision, and I also recently sat down with the Ninth Circuit's Judge Carlos Bea. So RBG is back. She returned to the bench this week for oral arguments after missing the entire January sitting while she recuperated from surgery. And boy, is she back. Uh, She jumped in asking questions in the first argument of the week in a case called Return Mail Inc. versus U.S. Postal Service, uh, which deals with the Postal Service's attempt to invalidate a patent for a machine that scans and processes barcodes with address information. She also wrote the majority opinion for the Timms versus Indiana case, Jason, can you get us up to speed on that? Sure. And on the subject of returns, it's great to be back myself. (laughs) So this week, uh, the court unanimously held that the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment applies to the states. It's potentially a major win for property owners and individual citizens facing excessive fines, fees, and forfeitures. This case involved a man named Tyson Thames, who sold $225 worth of heroin to undercover police officers. He was arrested and pleaded guilty and given a sentence of two years of home confinement, five years of probation, and was ordered to pay about $1,200 in fees and court costs. But the state of Indiana also employed a private law firm to forfeit his $42,000 Land Rover as an instrumentality of his drug crime under the state's civil forfeiture laws. Tim's challenged that seizure as excessive and won in two Indiana courts. But the state Supreme Court held that the excessive fines clause, unlike the Eighth Amendment's two other protections against cruel and unusual punishment and excessive bail, had never been held to apply against the states, a process referred to as incorporation. So Timms took his challenge to the Supreme Court, and this week he prevailed. All nine justices agreed that the clause applies against the states. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, writing for eight of the justices, found, quote, the historical and logical case for incorporation to be, quote, overwhelming, and that the right against excessive fines easily meets the test for incorporation, namely that it is both deeply rooted in our history and fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty. Ginsburg traced the history of protections against excessive fines back a thousand years to Magna Carta and later to the English Bill of Rights. Here in America, even the earliest colonists understood the right to be fundamental, And in 1787, Ginsburg points out eight states, eight state constitutions covering 70% of the population barred excessive fines. Today, every state prohibits them or requires proportionality. The reason these protections are so important is clear. From England's Star Chamber to the Black Codes in the South, as Ginsburg writes, quote, exorbitant tolls undermine other constitutional liberties. I, I love to see when even the liberal members of the court take things back to first principles and, and go through the history, you know, going back to Magna Carta and the English Bill of Rights. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> uh, so uh, Indiana, for its part, argued that the court should overturn a prior case, Austin v. United States, which recognized that federal civil forfeitures, which are at least partially punitive in nature, are subject to the excessive fines clause, uh, but the court declined to do so. So going forward, the excessive fines clause is officially incorporated against the states, and it applies to civil forfeiture cases as well. This is significant because it affords a potential new avenue for victims of unjust seizures to recover their money or property in court. But the real impact of this decision won't truly be known until courts resolve exactly what constitutes an excessive civil forfeiture. The justices grappled with that question at oral argument, But the resolution of that debate, we'll have to wait for another day. There were a couple of interesting concurrences by Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas. Uh, Thomas 
concurred in the judgment, uh, but he would have reached the result in a, in a different way. He thought that the court should incorporate the uh, the excessive fines clause through the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities clause rather than the due process clause. And Justice Gorsuch wrote a, I think, one or two paragraph concurrence uh, agreeing with Thomas that that might be a better path to incorporation as an original matter. So Thomas has long argued against substantive due process, calling it oxymoronic because due process, quote, speaks only to process or procedural protections. And he observed that the court's substantive due process doctrine has allowed the court to, quote, fashion fundamental rights without any textual constraints, such as in the most notoriously incorrect decisions. And he pointed to Roe v. Wade and Dred Scott versus Sanford. So Justice Thomas continued his crusade against substantive due process, but now it seems he has an ally in Justice Gorsuch. It's good to have a friend. (laughs) It is. Uh, One other thing that I want to note uh, just briefly is that uh, Justice Thomas has been critical of civil asset forfeiture in the past. In 2017, he authored a short concurrence calling for greater judicial scrutiny of civil asset forfeiture, which was, of course, at the heart of the Thames case. At the time, he cast out on whether the historical practice, to his mind, uh, at, uh, in use at the time of the founding could justify the modern application of civil forfeiture, which is often abused as a means to generate revenue and permits property and currency seizures even from innocent people. Similar historical abuses of the power to fine were noted at length in both Ginsburg's opinion and Thomas's concurrence. So I, for one, hope that this signals a willingness uh, on the part of the court to reexamine civil forfeiture more broadly in the future. Moving on to recent grants, in the past week, the court announced it will hear the case involving the census citizenship question. The government had asked the court to bypass the appeals court because it will need to print all of the census forms by the end of June, which doesn't really leave much time for appellate and SCOTUS review. So the justices are going to hear that case and the oral arguments will take place the second week of April. The court also announced that next term it will hear County of Maui v. Hawaii Wildlife Fund a case dealing with violations of the Clean Water Act's prohibition on the discharge of pollutants into navigable waters without a permit. The court's going to look at whether a violation occurs if a pollutant is indirectly, rather than directly, released into navigable waters. Finally, from the orders list this week, the court declined to take up a defamation case brought by a woman who had accused Bill Cosby of raping her. She filed suit after Cosby's attorney leaked a letter to the media that she argues twisted her background in order to damage her reputation. The lower court held that since she, quote, thrust herself into the national spotlight, she is a limited purpose public figure and that she had to demonstrate the comments about her were made with actual malice or reckless disregard for the truth. This is a standard that comes from the uh, New York Times versus Sullivan decision in 1964, Supreme Court decision, a landmark First Amendment decision. And actual malice in this context means the writer knew the disputed statement was false. So Justice Clarence Thomas he apparently had a busy couple of weeks while the justices were were, uh, were off. He concurred with the Supreme Court's decision not to take up th- this particular case, but noted that New York Times versus Sullivan and later cases were, quote, policy-driven decisions masquerading as constitutional law. And he's not sure that they can be squared with the original meaning of the First Amendment. Thomas suggested the court should take a closer look at this issue in an appropriate case. And... The media went wild. Of with, course they did. With some suggesting this would be the end of the First Amendment as we know it. Uh, and of course, President Trump has also complained about libel laws, saying that they make it too hard for public officials to win libel suits. Uh, but I would point out none of the other justices joined Justice Thomas's statement this week. 
So it's not clear that uh, any of the other justices are also interested in reconsidering this issue. But it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I even saw one headline that said that Justice Thomas was joining President Trump's crusade against libel laws. And I'm going to say not quite. (laughs) I'm not sure there are two more different men (laughs) serving in government today. Oh, that's Uh, (laughs) right. (laughs) But moving on, I recently spoke with Judge Bea. Carlos Bea is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Judge Bea. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So born in San Sebastian, Spain, your family fled in 1939 in anticipation of a German invasion, and you then lived in Cuba before your family settled in California. Would you say these early experiences helped shape your views of the rule of the law? Well, I can't really draw a parallel between leaving Europe in the, when I was five years old <laughs> and, and, the sh- and any effect this had on my view of the rule of the law. But um, <clears throat> we left Europe. Um, we were we were living in France when the war broke out. We left Europe because my mother was very concerned. Uh, she'd been in the Spanish Civil War uh, from 1936 to 39, and she'd seen some of the uh, effects of uh, German intervention. And uh, she thought that uh, France would not be able to hold out against the Germans, which she was absolutely right. And she thought that maybe the Germans would continue marching on down through Spain. So um, we, she decided that we'd go to Cuba to wait the war out. Um, and she, her mother had been born in Cuba, and my father had been born in Cuba. So we, that's why we went to Cuba. Uh, the uh, reason we, we just wanted to get away from war. <laughs> <laughs> that was the reason we took. Then we, when we got to Cuba... She thought she'd like to see what the United States looked like. And we went to uh, Florida and uh, bought a used car and uh, drove from Florida to California. That's where I've been ever since. (laughs) So you went on to play basketball while in college at Stanford. And then you played on Cuba's Olympic basketball team at the Helsinki Olympics. Uh, I believe you're the first Olympic athlete to appear on SCOTUS 101. <laughs> so tell me about this experience. Well, um, I was, my father was a Cuban citizen, so when I was born, I, was, I had Cuban citizenship. And I was uh, in junior college at uh, in California. I was in Menlo JC, and I was playing basketball, and I had a pretty good year. So um, my brother suggested that I send whatever press clippings I have uh, to the Cuban basketball team, Olympic <laughs> basketball coach in Havana, which I did, and I got a return mail saying you're on the team. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, hooray. So um, at the end of the uh, – I was Stanford. I was a sophomore at Stanford then, and I wasn't playing on the Stanford team. I was playing – I was redshirting out for a year because I was only 17, and um, I was a sophomore in college. So um, I decided to uh, – uh, go to Havana and play with the team. And while I was driving down to Havana, there was a coup d'etat, and Batista took over for Prioso Carrasa, the, the elected president. And when we arrived in, when I arrived in Havana and got together with the other members of the team, uh, we were practicing, we found out that all our funds to go to Helsinki had been stolen by the prior uh, Olympic Committee. And there wasn't a there wasn't a dollar left. Oh wow! So we had to go. We had to finance ourselves to go to Helsinki, which we did. Uh, that's another story, and I won't bore you with that one. <laughs> but we finally got to go to Helsinki, 
And we went to Helsinki. We played in the games, and we made the 16-team finals. And uh, we didn't do too well. We only went, we won two games and lost five. And then after the games, um, I wanted to go down and see my relatives in Spain. I mm-hmm. hadn't been there since, since the war, since 1939. So when I went down to uh, Madrid to see some of my relatives, um, I hooked up with a Spanish team, uh, the Real Madrid the uh, famous soccer team, but also <laughs> had a basketball team, and they were the national champions in uh, in Spain. Mm-hmm. So I played a year for them in Spain, and then I went back to Stanford and played three years at Stanford. So uh, after you had spent a year or so um, mm-hmm. in in Europe playing basketball, then you returned to the U.S. and you faced a deportation order. And at, I think you were just twenty one years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you appealed that order to the Board of Immigration Appeals and. And you, uh, you had the order overturned. So tell me about that experience. Well, uh, when I got back to Stanford, um, I guess I was 19 then, um, I, I I'd had residency status in the United States back when I first came in, back in 1943. But um, when I went to the American embassy in Madrid, uh, they asked me, uh, I wanted to get my papers in order, and they asked me why I was going back to California. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going back to Stanford. So they gave me a, an F-1 student visa, which is a non-resident visa. And that cut the period of residency from resident into non-resident. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't eligible to become a citizen unless I was a resident. So I didn't re- realize this. But so I went on merrily on my way and went went to college. And then when I got to be 21, I wanted to become an American citizen. And I found out that I wasn't eligible. So I had to uh, make an application mm-hmm. to for residency, and that triggered a deportation hearing. They said that I had given up my residency and I didn't want to be a resident. And uh, the hearing officer uh, ordered me, in those days, deported. Now we call it removed. <laughs> and um, so then I took an appeal, and the appeal was uh, heard in Washington in uh, 1957. Um, by the full Board of Immigration Appeals, which then were, there were five uh, members. And the uh, at the end of the uh, appellate argument, of course, I was just sitting there as an as, as a, uh, interested bystander. <laughs> the um, chief judge, uh, Mr. Fanukin, uh, leaned across and uh, said to my attorney, uh, would you mind if I ask your client a few questions. Mm-hmm. Well, my attorney hadn't prepared me for any testimony because this was an <laughs> appellate argument, right? So there I was. Uh, and, and of course, he had to say yes. He couldn't say no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he said, okay, go, yeah, of course, ask him any questions you want. And I was totally unprepared. So I didn't know what he was going to ask me about, mm-hmm. what he was going to ask me about the case or what. And the... Uh, the chief judge said, uh, uh, what position did you play at the Stanford Varsity? <laughs> and he wanted to talk about basketball. And he asked me if I'd been recruited by UCLA. And I said, yes, I met Johnny Wooden. And uh, he talked. all he wanted to talk about was about basketball. <laughs> and so uh, he wrote the opinion in my favor later on. Because <laughs> he's a basketball fan. <laughs> it turned out fan. pretty well for you. So do you think this experience is what led you to pursue a career in the law? Well, not really. I, I had made up my mind that I wanted to, 
I considered becoming a lawyer earlier. When I was about 14 years of, uh, of age, I I was involved in some family litigation in California. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, as a result of that, I met a lawyer who uh, persuaded me that uh, being a lawyer was a cool thing and uh, <laughs> that I would enjoy it greatly. And he he sort of talked me into it. Uh, he's, he had the phrase, he said, uh, being a lawyer means every time the door is open, a new life comes in and you get to, uh, to, to participate in it. And I thought that was rather interesting. So. So if you hadn't gone into the law, what do you think you would have done with your life? Well, I probably would have gone into some sort of finance, uh, stock market uh, transactions, um, or um, my brother was a, a contractor, so I might have gone followed him in the contracting business. You wouldn't have continued with professional basketball? No, I wasn't that good. <laughs> uh, so then you went on to law school, and I understand that you and Heritage's own Ed Meese uh, competed against each other in a moot court competition. So yes. tell me about that. Well, uh, there were a series of moot court competitions at Stanford. I went to Stanford Law School. And the um, uh, the winners, which were Pete Haas and me, uh, were the Stanford moot court team. And the State Bar of California had a uh, competition, statewide competition, and there were several uh, stages that you went through, and we won the preliminary stages. And then in the finals, it was uh, then Bolt Hall versus Stanford, not mm-hmm. Berkeley Law. And um, the Bolt Hall team was made up of uh, Bob Wallach, who became a very successful plaintiff's personal injury lawyer, and Ed Meese. <laughs> and I was on the Stanford team with Pete Haas, who recently died, uh, and myself. And we argued a case in front of some appellate judges, I think the Court of Appeals and Supreme Court judges of California, at Berkeley. Uh, and that's when I first met Ed Meese. This was in the spring of 1958. And can you tell me who won? Well, <laughs> as I said yesterday at, uh, at the luncheon, um, they had a – Eddie had a, an advantage over me. First, we were in Berkeley – Second, he was representing a labor union against an employer. And third, the judges were all California appointees. So, yes, uh, Ed and, uh, and uh, Bob Wallach won. <laughs> so let's fast forward a bit. Uh, you were a trial court judge in San Francisco for a number of years. Yeah, you're missing 30 years of trial and cases. <laughs> well, if we had all day, we could get into that. <laughs> uh, but then in 2003, President George W. Bush nominated you to the Ninth Circuit. Do you do you ever miss being a trial court judge? All the time. Um, it's quite different being an appellate court judge than being a trial court judge. Uh, it's interesting. It's, it's fascinating work, and I like it very much. But I miss some sort of the uh, the, the human element of mm-hmm. uh, meeting lawyers and parties and expert witnesses and jurors. All all that um, that. that I don't know this connection with mm-hmm. uh, with with law and with uh, uh, cases. You miss some of that because uh, in uh, in appellate argument, you usually have ten or fifteen minutes uh, each uh, attorney, sometimes half an hour, and you don't really get to know them or their mm-hmm. style, uh, their personalities very well. Uh, so uh, I sort of miss the trial court. Once in a while, I will volunteer to sit as a district court judge, but every time I do, the case settles. 
Uh, so what was the transition like going from being a trial court judge where uh, you basically run the show? You mm. you preside over trials, you operate mostly on your own, uh, to now being one of 29 on an appeals court? Well, uh, actually, we, we sit in panels of three. So the, the, the communication is between the other two panel members and myself. Um, it's quite different. Uh, the preparation for the hearings and the preparation for determination of the, of the case um, is more collegial and you have to uh, sort of pitch your points in, in a way that is uh, amenable to the other people. Um, when you're a trial court judge, you just rule and, and mm-hmm. until the court uh, overrules you <laughs> or reverses you. That's the ruling. So it's a much more collegial and uh, combined effect uh, to be a, a, a appellate court judge than a trial court judge. So you sit on a court that is famously known for its liberal and sometimes kooky decisions. Uh, along with judges like Dermot O'Scanlan, you have a reputation for writing dissents that draw the Supreme Court's attention to these cases. Uh, I guess we could call you the Ninth Circuit's great dissenter. How do you and your colleagues maintain collegiality despite sometimes having quite fierce disagreements? I read somewhere, and I think it was well written, <clears throat> that good manners— are the necessary lubricants <laughs> to the functioning of society. And I think that being uh, mannerly and, and being considerate um, of people with whom you disagree uh, can be done without being disagreeable. And so um, that it's, it's important to, to use um, communication abilities and humor uh, to get along with people uh, I don't think of <clears throat> myself as, as a great dissenter, but um, I do write more dissents than I write opinions. <laughs> uh, so one of your opinions uh, that garnered quite a bit of media attention was the monkey selfie case. Uh, in this case, PETA filed suit on behalf of a monkey that took photographs that ended up in a photographer's book. Uh, PETA was seeking damages and injunctive relief for copyright infringement, and you held that while the monkey had a constitutional had constitutional standing to bring suit, it did not have statutory standing to bring a copyright infringement act uh, action under the Copyright Act. Did you ever imagine that one of your most famous cases would involve a monkey taking a photograph? Well, I I don't know if that's one of my most famous cases, <laughs> but it was it was a very interesting case because um, we had to hold that the monkey had Article Three um, jurisdiction, I mean, the, the, the court had Article Three jurisdiction over the monkey's claim because in a prior Ninth Circuit Court case uh, called Cetacean Society versus USA, the court had held that all the dolphins and all the whales in the world could be plaintiffs without a next friend intervening uh, for Article Three purposes, that they weren't covered under under the statute, a particular environmental statute that it was being invoked, but they did have Article Three standing. I have serious doubts whether animals have Article Three standing to bring <laughs> actions on their own behalf. Uh, but I had to go along that with 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 that until uh, an end bank court would reverse uh, that decision. The case itself was uh, interesting because. After the oral argument, which I think probably didn't go too well for the monkey, uh, <laughs> there was a, we, we were notified that the case had been settled. 
Um, but the case had been settled in a way that uh, PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, who represented themselves as an ex-friend of Naruto, the monkey in Indonesia, mm -hmm. um, had settled with Slater, the writer, under terms of an agreement where Slater would pay a certain amount of money to a charitable organization mm -hmm. that befriended and protected animals, mm -hmm. could be PETA. <laughs> but Naruto was specifically not made a party to the settlement. Mm -hmm. So I consider them, and the majority consider that settlement to be ineffective to cause the case to be moot mm -hmm. and an attempt to manipulate the jurisprudence of animal rights. Mm -hmm. right? So we denied the motion to dismiss the appeal and wrote an opinion stating that under the copyright statute, which vests copyright uh, remedies in uh, persons uh, and describes persons as being persons, the widows, the children, legitimate or illegitimate, of the, of the uh, author. We thought that that did not really describe animals, <laughs> it described persons. So we, thought, we found that the animal wasn't protected um, under, the, under the statute and uh, affirmed the district court, which had dismissed the case. So the district court case and our case remain on the books as precedent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, shifting gears a bit, um, I've spoken with a number of former law clerks about their experiences, but I'd love to hear from a judge's perspective what lessons you hope your clerks will take away from their time with you. Well, I think the, the notes that I get from uh, my former clerks when they move on to practice or to school to academic pursuits or whatever, they, they emphasize the fact that they learned a great deal about writing uh, while they were working with me or for me. Um, I tend to be uh, uh, a harsh editor and um, I look at everything that goes out from, from our chambers before it goes out, mm -hmm. whether it's a message to another judge or it's a bench memorandum that we're sharing with other people or a memorandum disposition or, of course, an opinion. And um, I, I, try to, uh, I try to impose on or try to educate the clerks that the purpose of our writing is to make complicated matters understandable, mm -hmm. not only to the lawyers involved in the case, but to a intelligent man on Main Street, mm -hmm. that, uh, so that we should write in a way that anybody can understand what we're doing and why. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and th th they mention that most. Then also, once in a while, I'll get a call from a clerk who's gone to a big law firm, um, and most of them go to big, big firms, big law firms. Um, and he'll, about two or three years after they're out there, they're all, they all wanted to be litigators. Nobody's mm -hmm. a trial attorney anymore because nobody tries cases, but they like, <laughs> they like to be litigators. And they say that they're being uh, cabined in uh, rooms in the law firm and reading a lot, 12 hours a day. And they'd, they'd like to see if I can help them get a job as a public defender or as a deputy DA <laughs> because they'd like to get into court. And escape the, the horrors of document review. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so is there anything you particularly enjoy doing with your clerks? I've heard about 
uh, skiing with Judge Timkovich and playing ping pong with with Judge Newsom? Well, we have um, regular luncheons uh, around the courthouse. The places we can eat are not all that good around our courthouse, <laughs> but they're, they're there. And then we have uh, clerks' reunions mm-hmm. um, every, every now and then. But I don't have any. Well, I take the I take the clerks to the, to the Giants games because we got Giants tickets. Oh, that's and, fun. And that, that is fun, and good. To, we got good seats there. Now I've heard about the whiskey fund in your office. Can you tell me about that? All right. The Whiskey Fund is an institution which um, uh, is – we have got a big glass pot uh, in chambers in which there are dollar bills. Um, <laughs> and the rules are that if you split an infinitive right, um, or you use spell check instead of proofreading, so the word would comes out to mean a piece of stick instead of a <laughs> – Instead of a verb, right, uh, because it's misspelled, um, you owe a dollar. Um, and the dollar goes into the big fund, and in, into the big uh, uh, glass. Um, when we get enough dollars together, we buy some whiskey, um, <laughs> bourbon or scotch. And when the, um, uh, we have a particularly good result, such as if I call a case in bank, and the case goes in bank, much mm-hmm. to my surprise. Um, the, uh, the clerk who wrote the uh, bench memo, the call memo, um, will uh, be feeded and will drink it to his health. <laughs> and we'll ring a bell. We have a bell which we call the Liberty Bell. And, we, <laughs> and the, the ceremony is called Striking a Blow for Liberty because if go back to uh, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, vice president, John Nance Garner. Um, Garner was vice president, and he was bored stiff because he didn't have anything to do. So at 5 o'clock every afternoon, he would invite his friends in to have a, a drink of whiskey, and he'd say, let's, blow, let's strike a blow for liberty. So we strike a blow for liberty when something goes well in chambers. For instance, if I've, called, if I've written a dissent from denial of rehearing and the Supreme Court grants certiorari and then overturns the case, we ring the liberty bell and, and strike a blow for liberty. That's a great tradition. Um, do you have anything in your chambers that reflects your your personality? Oh yes, uh, we. The, I, I have beautiful chambers. They used to be the chambers of Judge Noonan before that of Judge uh, Poole, um, and um, there were glass cabinets all around. The mahogany with glass fronts, and I have uh, a bunch of photographs, mostly of uh, uh, Louise and my uh, boys. Uh, we have four boys. And um, their athletic uh, exploits. Uh, they were all rowers. Mm-hmm. Um, the oldest one, Sebastian, was the most distinguished rower. He won a silver medal in the Olympic Games of 2000 in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex rode on the uh, Georgetown team, and Nick and um, Dominic rode on, as freshmen at, at Cal and Stanford. So that we have a lot of photographs of them, uh, and then a couple of posters. From the 1952 games when I played. <laughs> Two Olympians in the family. That's wonderful. <laughs> uh, so one final question, something that um, we ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. Mm. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? I would pick a Supreme Court justice with whom I had conversations, Anthony Scalia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would talk about whether he would like to change his mind about Chevron. 
<laughs> well, it seemed like he might have been coming around towards the end. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, Judge Bea, thank you so much for joining me. All right. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can also email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.